So let's uh, let's let's get into it then. Uh, your book is a, a fascinating study in happiness and its place in our lives, and this is a subject that I'm really interested in, and in some of my writing and, and my work in religion literature, and. You know, there are a lot of places that we could begin and go into discussion, but uh, I was interested in a stat of a survey that, that came out recently where the survey said that 69% of people in 42 countries stated that happiness is extremely important to them. But it, it seems like there's been a lot of pushback in recent years against the idea that we should view happiness as an important part of our lives. And different influencers have been talking about how happiness is not really something that we should be pursuing or you know, we'd be better off if we didn't make it such a goal in our lives. Or There are other people out there, influencers and, and scholars alike, have been talking about how maybe we should strive for other things except for happiness and do you, my question is, do you view yourself in your book as maybe part of a, a pushback against this pushback, if you will? Um, and right. it, if so, you know, why do you think it's important to, uh, to oppose this anti-happiness narrative? Well, um, yes, thank you for that question. Um, um, it wasn't written as a, I wasn't even aware of the original pushback in order to push back against that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, the people who say, oh, you know, you shouldn't pursue happiness or there's there's a deleterious element to pursuing happiness, I think are missing a key element to happiness, which is that you shouldn't be willfully pursuing happiness. So in the last chapter of my book, uh, I have a quote from Viktor Frankl, where he's basically saying, I'm paraphrasing his words, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he's basically saying, as relating to success, don't pursue success willfully success is something that comes as a result of you you know doing the right things well the exact same quote applies simply replace the word success by the word happiness so i don't get up in the morning my objective today is to be happy but rather if i have adopted a certain set of of mindsets if i have implemented certain decisions that i know statistically speaking are correlated with downstream effects of happiness then i will wake up inherently happy so so i agree that the willful pursuit of happiness is not going to make you happy but let's take an example if you have made a good choice in terms of the spouse with whom you're going to share your life and if you've also made the right decision in terms of which job provides you with the greatest amount of possible you know, purpose and meaning, well, you're well on your way to cracking the, the code to happiness. Because if I wake up in the morning next to the person in the bed with me and that I really like that person, then I go off to a job that you know makes me rub my hands in existential glee. And then I return at home to that bed next to that person that I liked in the morning when I left. Well, I've pretty much... I'm happy throughout the day. So, so I, again, but I didn't willfully set out to say, I need to be happy and therefore let me do ABC. I, there's a, I, I lived the life that was authentic to me, whereby the choices that I made are congruent with my values. And then the result of that is that I'm content and happy. 
Yeah. And so maybe jumping off of that, um, you know, there's so much discussion in, in our culture on, on happiness and you know, how we should be pursuing or whether we should be pursuing it. And I think you really, you've given a, a great modus operandi, if you will, of, of how to go about maybe uh, achieving it in our lives. And with, with all the discussion about it, uh, I wonder if you feel like we, we don't talk about it enough in our culture, or maybe we don't talk about it in the right ways. Right. So I, so I think in a sense that speaks very much of the first answer that I gave, which is yeah. it is wrong to talk about it as though you should pursue happiness. So that's kind of like, I don't know if this is a, a perfect analogy, but if I, if I were to say to you, uh, you know, we've evolved a mechanism called kin altruism, which is where we're altruistic towards our kin. Why would we have evolved that? Why would I jump into the river risk my life to save three of my children. Well, if you understand that evolution only cares about the propagation of your genes, well, then it makes perfect evolutionary sense from an evolutionary calculus perspective that even if I were to die when jumping in that river to save the three children, the three children on average share 50% of their genes with me, right? And therefore, it makes it makes adaptive sense that I would engage in this behavior. Now, why am I giving this analogy? Because most people who instinctively jump into the river to save their three children are not willfully aware of the evolutionary calculus that I just told you, right? They didn't say, well, you know, if it was only one child, I may not jump into the river because that's only 50% of their genes, right? It's, it's an instinct that's built into us. And then the behavior manifests itself. And if the behavior is adaptive, then it makes sense that evolution would select it. So in that sense, happiness is something similar. It's not something that is necessarily within the purview of my conscience, conscious machination. I don't get up and say, there are five things that I can do today to maximize my happiness. But again, if I've lived an authentic life, if I've done enough introspection to say, what do I want out of life? Well, I, I would love to be a parent. I would love to raise children. I would love to be married to someone who respects me and who's my best friend. I, I would love to have a job that, you know, every single day gives me great purpose and meaning. I try to do things in moderation. So I have a chapter on everything in moderation, which Aristotle had talked about, Maimonides had talked about, Buddha had talked about. And so I demonstrate that for most things in life, the the, the edict of all things in moderation is exactly correct. I also live life as though it's a playground. I immerse myself in play, even when pursuing very serious things like science. And so there's a set of these edicts, which if you apply, statistically speaking, it will increase your likelihood of being happy. And that's statistically is really the important word here, because unlike many books in the self-help market that guarantee you do ABC and you'll be happy, do ABC and you'll be a better uh, employee. I'm saying that life is a game of statistical probabilities, right? So if you don't want to, if you want to reduce your chances of getting lung cancer, don't smoke. But people who don't smoke also get lung cancer. But you certainly reduce your chances if you don't smoke. So by the same token, all other things equal, if you pursue intellectual varieties, 
that's going to increase your happiness. If you live life in such a way that you minimize the likelihood of future regret, that's going to make you happy. If you choose the right spouse, that's going to make you happy. So yes, we do speak about happiness the wrong way, only in the sense that we think that we should have a general goal called happiness. No, happiness comes from living a good life. Yeah, I I certainly agree with that. My my own approach to this is if you pursue the good, you can get happiness as an ancillary benefit. You know, can't grab it directly. But, um, exactly right. Yeah, you know, I was really interested in some of the figures you mentioned who've written about happiness and that you've now written about them. Do you uh, view your approach to happiness as uh, maybe influenced by any of them in, in particular? In, in it, it, well, I missed the first part in, in terms of what the ancient wisdoms, what, what, yeah. what did you? Yeah, the uh, the ancient writers and, and sages, Aristotle, Maimonides, yes. and uh, more recently, Viktor Frankl. Uh, do you view your uh, approach to happiness as influenced particularly by any one of them? Like, uh, I mean, I could point to a singular one, although I think it's more a, a, a school of philosophy that is more like, so I do think that there is a lot of value in the Stoics. Uh, not all of it, though. So, for example, so the, the Stoics were very good at being the precursor to cognitive behavior therapy, right? Cognitive behavior therapy is the idea that oftentimes we suffer from uh, psychic maladies because our cognitions about something is wrong. And if I can now change the cognition towards that something, then there will be better behaviors. And hence CBT is cognitive behavior therapy. So the way that you view something is often what causes the harm more than the thing itself. Well, that's exactly one of the fundamental tenets of stoicism from 2000 years ago, where, uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing the exact tenet, but it basically says it's oftentimes not the event that is the most painful, but the manner by which we react to the event. Now that is within my control. The event happening is not within my control. How I choose to respond to that. Uh, and so I, I take uh, great solace in that because we know from contemporary clinical psychology that CBT is one of the most powerful, effective tools to combat all sorts of mental ailments. And so so I would say that the Stoic philosophy uh, is certainly one that is 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 worth exploring if you're interested in happiness. If if I talk about a singular person, then probably Aristotle. Uh, be, well, first of all, because he's written some incredible stuff on that. You know, my uh, a good friend of mine who's a fellow Lebanese author. His name is Nassim Talib. Uh, used to uh, you know kind of tease me many years ago, and he'd say, you know, God, I don't know what you guys study in in psychology because. Everything that there is to understand about human nature, the ancient Greeks have already told us uh, what it is. And I mean, I understood he was kind of ribbing me, but as I was doing a deep dive in terms of the research for this book, I started thinking, you know what? I think that maybe Nassim was onto something because every time I would get an insight that I thought was unique and brilliant on my part because I came up with it. Well, here comes Epictetus. He's already said it 2000 years ago. <laughs> and here comes Aristotle and he beat me to it by a couple of millennia. So uh, so that was quite a humbling experience because you you really do realize that uh, while many philosophical traditions are, are, are very rich and, and, and varied, 
there really was something in that Greek water that made those ancient Greeks and in some cases Romans uh, quite unbelievably adept at understanding human nature. Oh, oh, for sure. Um, uh, do you do you know uh, the South Park episode? The Simpsons already did it. Uh, I don't think that's the title of the. I episode. don't. But uh, the, you know South Park, right? The, I I do know what it is, but I've never watched it. Uh, oh, it's uh, such a such a great, wonderful show. The the humor is so sharp, and the satire. And you know, right. they did one episode where the, the boys are playing, and they're trying to come up with wild schemes and and plots, and like, oh, I'm gonna go blot out the sun and take a big you know thing and uh shield the town from the sun and and the other one says oh they uh they already did that in the simpsons episode and they <laughs> said no I'm, I'm gonna go and chop off the the head of the statue of the town pioneer and not that, that i'll create chaos that way oh simpsons already did it and <laughs> every every time they uh try to come up with some wild and scheming plot they discover that it was already done in the simpsons episode so um so i'm south park and the simpsons are the ancient greeks oh well i yeah the the greeks so i'm working on uh on this book now on uh, the divine comedy on dante's divine comedy sure. and so there's this one section that I, I have titled uh the greeks already did it because you know every every time dante tries to create this fantastical situation you know, he's almost inevitably drawing on something out of greek mythology right. so, it's so hard for him to seemingly to create something original and so i i titled the chapter greeks already did it like <laughs> simpsons already did it right it's just amazing their precedents and whether it's philosophy or mythology and, and stories it's um, but yeah, getting back to to the Greeks, it's really, really interesting to me that you mentioned the Stoics as school of thought for an influence for a source and happiness. Because I think maybe many of us today, uh, we those are familiar with those of us who are familiar with Greek schools of thought. If we're thinking about happiness, we would think maybe more of the Epicureans than right. the Stoics in terms of happiness. But to use a Stoic as a model for happiness, I think, is uh, is really quite an interesting approach. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, what about for um, you know, for people who do believe that happiness is important, not the the school of thought today who are pushing back against the happiness narrative, but for those who say, you know, no. Um, Happiness is important, and maybe we should even be striving for it. Um, but there's still a debate of where exactly in our lives we should be pursuing it, and what what arenas we can expect to get happiness. And uh, it seems to me that that this often comes up, or one of the most contentious areas this comes up in is the, the issue of work and whether we should be looking for happiness in work and saying, okay, I'm only going to view work as a, a means to an end and I'm going to look for happiness elsewhere. You know, or should we be actually expecting that our work, our, our careers, our, our jobs could make us happy? Right. So in an ideal world, 
yes, I think that we can obtain happiness through our chosen job or profession. Now, and I'll, I will in a second explain what happens if we can't get that at work. But for now, if I'm going to describe what are the key metrics that I should aspire to 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 attain uh, in an ideal job, I, I talk about two key metrics. Metric one or pursuit one. Any job that allows you to instantiate your creative impulse, all other things equal, is a direct pathway to purpose and meaning. Because the act of creation, immersing yourself in creativity, is by definition something that's going to give me purpose and meaning. Now, that can cover a very large panoply of, of professions. I could be a stand-up comic. I could be a chef. I could be an architect. I could be an author and professor. I could be a podcaster. Each of these people are immersed in completely different domains but they share one thing in common. They are creating something anew that heretofore didn't exist until I came along and created the stand-up routine to make the people laugh tonight, created the dish that's going to make a great culinary experience, created the bridge, created the book, created the podcast that we're doing right now. So the act of creation is akin to a mystical process. You, you it, There's something that is so beautiful. When I, when I open my laptop, the first time I open it to start that, that I open the word document and I'm about to strike that first letter of the new book. And then through this incredible process where these neuronal firings happen in my brain, translating into my fingers. And then 12 months later, 14 months later, I send that book to the publisher. And then a year after that, people send me selfies of my book with them sitting on a beach somewhere, what what could be more purpose and meaning than that, right? I, it, it's something, I have shared something from the deep recesses of my mind that now someone else is choosing to spend their time consuming. They That person at the beach can choose 1 million things to do. And somehow for that small moment, I won their attention. That's very humbling, that's very beautiful. And the same thing applies if I were a stand-up comic or or whatever other one of those creative uh, professions. So number one, if possible, if you do something with, with creativity, that's going to give you purpose and meaning. Second one, maybe a bit more earthly and less philosophical, anything that allow grants you temporal freedom in your day-to-day is going to make you happy. So contrast, so my I I, I work very, very hard. I work very long days. But I'm a vagabond, right? Right now I'm talking to uh, you and we're having a fun conversation. Then I'll go off to the cafe for two hours, start thinking about my next book prospectus. Then I'll go and, you know, uh, in French you say flané, like vagabond. I'm just kind of floating around. I'm always working, but I don't have what I call scheduling asphyxia. Whereas contrast that to the factory worker who doesn't even have the dignity to decide when they can relieve themselves by going to the bathroom. At 10.15, there is a union-mandated break where you can get a bathroom break. And at 12, you get to eat for 25 minutes. And so that temporal freedom, so the fact that I can kind of go off and create and I can do so at my pace. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have specific meetings to go to, but generally speaking, I can float around that gives me great happiness. Now, what about the person who doesn't have the luxury to 
be able to do that. They, 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 they have two children that they didn't expect to have this early in their life. They have to put food on the table and they become a bus driver. Well, any honest job is dignified. But then in this case, you may not be able to instantiate what I'm saying within your job. How about after you finish your job, you've always wanted to do glass blowing as an art form. Why don't you, instead of watching TV for four hours, sign up at the local high school where they have an adult learning center, glass blowing and ceramics and do it then. So there's still a way for me to instantiate my creative impulse, ideally at my job, but even if not at my job, I could do it elsewhere. And if I could just add one more thing to my long-winded answer, even if you're a bus driver, there are ways that you can approach your job that comes closer to the ideal that I'm proposing or not. So example, I have been on a bus ride where because I'm someone who, who has a very open spirit and I'm always looking to chat with random people about all sorts of interesting things, the serendipity of, of meeting strangers, the magic of that. Uh, I remember, I think I was, I was returning either from New York or from Albany back to Ithaca. I did my PhD at Cornell University, which is in Ithaca, New York. And on that bus ride back, it was like a couple of hours long, I struck up this incredible conversation with the bus driver. And it was a very intimate conversation. As I was leaving the bus, a lady came up and she said, I just want to thank you. I said, thank me for what? Like I hadn't even spoken. She goes, oh, well, I was, I couldn't help but overhearing you and the bus driver chatting. And it was a beautiful conversation. Well, that bus driver created the opportunity, talking about create creation, created an opportunity. He was open to the world that he was open to having an exchange with a random stranger. Now contrast that to another bus driver who views his job as I take people from A to B, otherwise I'm completely closed off. Both of these people are bus drivers. One of them creates much more opportunities for communal bonding and so on. So I would say that those are the two fundamental markers that lead to occupational happiness. Yeah, wonderful answer. There, there are so many different aspects of that I would want to go into. Uh, one, one of them that, that jumped out to me, uh, one aspect that you brought up was uh, finding the elements of happiness in your scheduling of, of how you work and uh, the kind of freedom that you have maybe with within those spaces. And you know, I, I really resonated with that part because, you know, as also someone in a similar space in uh, in academia and also as a writer, you know, I, I don't have that kind of nine to five schedule or a factory worker schedule. And so there's that a blessing you could say, but also uh, a curse. Some also might describe the the aspect of where you're you're always working because you know, you're never free from that. You're always sure. thinking about ideas and you're writing and, you know, you may not even have a set office, but your office is everywhere because your ideas are. Your office is here. <laughs> yes, exactly. So as, as soon as you get up, you know, from the moment you get up and then from the moment uh, before you hit the pillow at night, uh, it can always be work. But then it's, it's finding the, the freedom within that perpetual work to um to be experiencing the happiness exactly uh, yeah. this Seinfeld once described that uh I heard him on an interview <laughs> he said uh you know someone once asked him about that because he said you know he's always working too because the ideas for his jokes are always coming to him and he's always trying to refine them and 
I asked him, isn't that a kind of torture? Like you can never be free from work. And he said, well, the optimal kind of work that you want to find is the right torture for you. <laughs> exactly. But, but that's, but maybe from your perspective, you're trying to shift the paradigm of that instead of looking at it as torture, looking at it as this kind of happiness because you found that that right form of, if you want to call it torture or burden or whatever it is. I actually call it, I mean, not not to kind of use a an ephemeral term, but I, I find that it's a form of intellectual hedonism. I mean, yes. I operate in the greatest pleasure-seeking ecosystems, which is the the world of ideas nothing could be more pleasurable than that so even if we use kind of the 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 regular colloquialism of you know epicurean pursuits well yes i mean juicy burgers are great but juicy ideas now that's really what titillates me and so no to me it's i mean i understand that there's the burden of always having the hyperactivation of your thinking but if i'm thinking about important things if i'm not thinking about the mundane administrative things of being a professor that is, is asphyxiating but the the creative stuff you know what what should i think about my next book what will be the narrative of my next book i could spend 10 days without sleeping thinking about that i love that stuff i i i get high on it yeah me too that's um, and maybe that's where you can bring in epicureanism as a way to enjoy what you're doing exactly yeah no i agree yeah mm -hmm. so i only have five more minutes um on my end so i can maybe conclude with one more question sure uh, i'm really interested in the connection between religion and happiness as, as someone who works in the, the area of religious studies <laughs> Uh, Jewish thought, and and you mentioned uh, in your book, uh, you talk about the the links between religion and happiness, and um, I'm curious if you think that uh, people who are are tone deaf to religion, as the the philosopher Isaiah Berlin once described himself, if they have a lesser chance of being happy than those who have faith, because uh, as you discussed, there there is this link between religion and happiness. Right. So is, is religion just uh, one more means of attaining happiness? And how do people who don't have this religious sensibility, how can, might they be able to to access the kind of happiness that religious people can experience? Yeah, that, that that's a great question. And I actually exactly addressed that because I didn't want the people who were irreligious to walk away thinking, well, they're, they're now doomed as they have fewer you know, pathways to happiness. So you're exactly right. There is a moderate positive correlation between religiosity and happiness. The more religious I am, the happier I am. But I actually argue that there are very earthly reasons for why that link might exist. To the extent that religion provides me greater communality, greater cohesion within group members, it offers me some form of purpose and meaning. Uh, it, it allows me to have greater bonds of reciprocity with in-group members. Those are all very earthly human needs. And then religion is simply instantiating those human needs. It's it's offering a vehicle for those human needs. Then it makes perfect sense for, for the research to have found that there is a positive correlation between religiosity and, and happiness. But then right after that, exactly to your question, I say, but wait a second, what if you're not religious? Well, then there I argue that there are still ways by which I can go out and grab the awe-inspiring 
spiritual experiences that cause life to be magisterial. So to, to my earlier point about striking up a conversation with a random stranger, that moment where two people who until that moment did not know each other could immerse themselves in a intellectual tango for the next 30 minutes and both walk away feeling enriched. That was a spiritual experience. Uh, uh, you know, looking at how my children are growing and developing into young teenagers, uh, you know, who have mo moral code, who, who have interesting ideas to discuss with me, that is a spiritual experience. So, so there are many, so there are many ways by which I can tickle my spiritual itch. One way is through immersing myself in, in my faith, but there are many, many other ways by which I can also achieve that goal. Uh, I argue that there are, in addition to the religious pathway, there are two other ways by which we can all be immortal. So even if I don't believe in religion, I can still aspire to be immortal. It's either through genetic propagation. I mean, literally having children causes me to be immortal. I, 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 you know, my children are a vehicle of my immortality. I know it doesn't sound romantic, but that's literally true. The other way by which I can be immortal is through mimetic immortality. If, if I write a book that is going to be read for many years to come, Therefore, that legacy causes my ideas to be immortalized in a library, in other people's minds and so on. So there are many ways by which I can itch that religious itch or scratch that religious itch, either by reading some Jewish or Christian or Islamic text or whichever your religion, or simply by appreciating the majesty of life. Well, it's a really beautiful answer and uh, a wonderful way to conclude this discussion. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Saad, for your time and your graciousness. The book is The Sad Truth About Happiness, available now from Regnery, and I, I highly recommend it to, to all readers out there. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Goodman. Cheers.